0: So, for a little bit of background, Gideon gets more press than anyone else in the book of Judges. Samson comes in at a close second, and Samson probably is one of the most famous of all the judges, who wouldn't be with hair like that, with strength like that. But Gideon gets 100 verses attributed to him, while Samson only gets 96. If you've looked ahead, or if you look ahead over to Hebrews chapter 11, and the great hall of faith, that that kind of memorial to the men and women of the Old Testament who had extraordinary lives of faith. Gideon is listed there. That's part of his testimony. That's part of his legacy. That's part of what we can look to as this man of faith. Faith, as we know, is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. You can't touch faith. But what you can do is you can see the effect of it in your life and in the lives of those around you. It's not something that you can see with your eye, but it's something that you can see in the lives of people lived out. And Gideon truly lived out his faith. In Hebrews 11, verses 32 and 34, it says this, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith, Conquered kingdoms, again, who through faith, not through their might, not through their minds, not through anything but faith, conquered kingdoms. They administered justice and they gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the fury of flames, who escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength. Spoiler alert, that's what we're going to be looking at with Gideon, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful. In battle, and they routed foreign enemies. Gideon is listed there as a man of faith. His faith is what separated him from the rest of his fellow countrymen in this time. Now, this chapter, we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 6. This chapter comes after about 40 years of peace. And if you don't believe me, or if you want to know where I get that, if you look at the very last verse of chapter 5, it says, So the land had rest for 40 years. In Judges chapter 4, we see the Israelites defeating Sisera. Chapter 5 is Deborah's song, a song of thankfulness and of worship and of honoring the Lord in that, in that defeat. And the land had rest, had peace for 40 years. Judges chapter 6 brings about the fourth apostasy and servitude of the Israelites. Now, apostasy, what is that word? What does it mean? apostasy in Christianity specifically, it means the rejection of the faith by someone who was formerly a Christian, formerly following the faith. So if I was an apostate, one day or for a portion of my life, I would be agreeing with the gospel, I would be living according to it, and now I would have turned my back on it and I'd be living contrary to it. The word apostasy actually comes from the Greek word apostasia, and it means a defection or to depart to revolt or rebel against. It's a turning away from that which you believed. And in the story in the book of Judges, we see about seven times the Israelites, they get to a point of turning away from what they believed. This is the fourth time. Apostasy in the apostates, a person who who turns away, isn't just specific to the Israelites. We have apostasy today in the church over in 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 5 it says this but know this that in the last days perilous times will come i think we can all agree that we are not in anywhere near the normal of time at all right now for men will become lovers of themselves lovers of money boasters proud blasphemers disobedient to parents unthankful unholy unloving unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of ungodliness, sorry, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away, run away. That's a heavy verse. That's not a very encouraging verse, nor is it a very exciting verse. But if we needed to take, and we do need to take an honest look, not only at the world we're living in, but the church today, I think sadly we can start seeing some of these aspects creeping into our lives. Men and women today have a tendency or have a propensity of putting self first. I want to make sure I'm taken care of. I want to make sure I'm good. We see that all throughout our society. We see that all throughout politics. The political climate, I'm not going to get on a soapbox about this, but it's, it's what I believe, and this is my opinion, so please hear that. The political atmosphere and the political arena right now is, is becoming more based upon personal opinion than care and health of the people. And I know that that's, that can be in itself an argument, and I don't want it to be. But I think if we were to consider each other highly than ourselves, we would be able to see grace abound so much more. Likewise, over in 2 Peter chapter 3, the third verse, it says this, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according their, to their own lusts. People are going to come looking out for themselves caring for themselves only and turning away from the things of faith. And church, I want to encourage you in these last days, in these perilous times, in this this time of apostasy in, in, in our world, I want to encourage you, keep your eyes steadfast on the Lord. Keep your eyes firmly focused on Him and allow Him to guide your opinions and your thoughts, your responses, your reactions, your words. Yield to the Spirit and don't give in to the desires and the crying out of the flesh. I want to react to a lot of things right now. But instead, I have to ask, I have to wait, I have to hold on to my flesh and keep it back and say, Lord, what is your response, not my reaction? So as much as we're going to look at the Israelites and see that this is the fourth time that they're turning away from the faith, I kind of want to make that kind of the the global lens for all of us. Not that we've turned away from the faith, but are we turning away from the faith? Are we in process of going against something that the Lord has taught us to be for? Are we going against those things? Are we starting to? I've titled this message, The Problem of Perspective, Part 1. And I say Part 1 because Gideon's life can't be summed up in one teaching. And so as I get the opportunity, we're going to finish teaching through his life and looking at perspective Because we all have our perspectives. You have yours, I have mine, my kids have theirs, my wife has hers, your friends, your family, everyone has their perspective. God also has a perspective. And we have to ask ourselves the question, whose perspective are we going to listen to? Whose perspective are we going to follow? Are we going to say that my perspective is is right for me, so that's what I'm going to do? Or are we going to yield our perspective and say, Lord, what's your perspective? And how do I do that? We're going to see all through Gideon's life that the problem that he faced was perspective and nothing else. He had his and God has his, whose perspective was listened to. So again, perspective, apostasy, kind of again, difficult concepts, difficult topics. But I think very appropriate for the time that we are in. Wondering, Whose perspective? Whose vision am I following? And secondly, where am I at with my faith? Is my life living a life of faith just as strong as it was a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago? Or is my faith lived out starting to get weaker and weaker? All right, let's jump on in. Verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them or handed them into the hand of Midian, gave them over to the hand of Midian for seven years. Remember, this starts after 40 years of peace. After 40 years of rest, then they did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord delivered them into the hand of the Midianites. We're going to see for seven years this has been going on. For seven years, they have been oppressed by the Midianites. In their complacency and in their prosperity, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They got comfortable. We are not called to a life of comfort. We're called to a life of conviction. Conviction tells us when we're doing something wrong against the Lord. If we are so focused on being comfortable, on being prosperous then our ear for conviction is going to start becoming more and more deaf. And in their prosperity, in their complacency, in their comfort, they did evil in the Lord's eyes. I want to be comfortable in life, but I never want to let my comfort overrule my conviction. I would rather experience conviction every day than worry about finding comfort every day. Because conviction keeps me close to the Lord. It keeps me next to Him. Conviction holds me tight onto my Heavenly Father. This oppression, this delivering them into the hand of the Midianites, this was both God's hand of grace and of mercy. The oppression is going to bring them back to Him. That's something they don't deserve. That's His grace. His grace is going to allow them to come back. The mercy here is seen in that it would have become, it would have been so much worse if God had left them alone. If God would have said, fine, peace, be, okay, be gone. It would have been so much worse for them. So in that act of mercy, He allows this discomfort. He allows this oppression to come in so that they would turn from their own sin and come back to the Lord. And sometimes the Lord allows seasons and times and trials of oppression of that heaviness into our lives. Not so that we could be crushed, not so that we can be broken down, not so that we can be defeated, but so that we can turn to Him and He can lift us up. That His grace would sustain us. That His mercy would draw us in. And we can experience the loving forgiveness, the loving saving grace of our Father every day. So they were in bondage. They were in oppression for seven years. What were the details? What did that bondage look like? Well, it's found right here in verses two through five. It says this And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. That means they came in and they beat Israel back. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, whenever they had planted their their crops, the Midianites would come up. Also the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them, and they would destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza. They would leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents, Coming in as numerous as locusts, they and their camels were without number. They would enter the land to destroy it. So what do we have here? Let's look at the details of this bondage. It says, because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, the strongholds in the mountains. Remember where we are. Geographically speaking, where are we? We are in the promised land. What is one of the biggest descriptions or definitions defining aspects of the promised land? It's the plains that are flowing with milk and honey. It's the fertile land. It's the soil. It's these, these rich agricultural fields and places for them to have an abundance of crop. But where does it say that they are living? Not in the plains flowing with milk and honey, but they are in the caves, in the mountains, in the hillside. They were not living in the land that the Lord had given them. They were not living in his promise. They had retreated from the promise of the Lord, and they were looking out for themselves by their own power. Now, the Midianites, it says, they did not continuously occupy the land. They didn't live there for seven years. They only showed up when it was time for harvest and time to go and, and bring in the, the livestock and and make the sacrifices and, and and slaughter the animals for meat they only came in when it was time to receive the benefit of the work they came at the time of harvest Israel's sin made all of their hard work profitless all of their produce and all of their livestock were stolen after they had worked so hard to get it and Sin does this. Understand this. Sin does this to us. It robs us of what we worked hard to gain. I'm sure, I know I can. I'm sure that you can look at your life and say, man, Lord, we were doing so good. There was so much fruit coming out of my life. And all of a sudden it just stopped and things went away. What's going on? That's an indication. That's a flag that he's, he's kind of throwing out and saying, look at your life. Check your heart. What's going on? sin will easily come in and rob you of the things that you are working for in your life. Sadly, we can look at the church, look at leadership in the church. Pastors and ministry leaders that have years of fruitful time of serving in a local body. And then sin creeps in. And all of a sudden, all that work, all that that sowing of seed, all that toiling of the hard soil is all for naught. Sin will rob you of that says that they came in and they and they destroyed the produce of the earth as far as Gaza. What does that mean? That means from the Jordan River all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, the entire breadth of the promised land. They came in and they swept through. Remember, this book comes after the book of Joshua, and in Joshua they conquer the land. They drive out the enemy and then they 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 settle the land, they disperse the land amongst all the tribes. So the Midianites, they weren't just coming in against one tribe in one area. They were coming in against all the tribes of Israel in the entire promised land, sweeping through and destroying the produce and taking away their livestock. Now, I have to point out, this this will be our, our kind of light note for the day, because I love moments like this. When the, when the Bible writers, when, when through the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write in details that just kind of should stand out but sometimes we read over i love focusing on these things they're like little nuggets of gold in the text it says they would come up verse five they would come up with their livestock and their tents coming in as numerous as locusts well number one locust swarms are insane if you want to see how many locusts are in a swarm go online go youtube it go go search for it online go find a video of a locust swarm you'll see how many we're talking about here Here's what I want to focus on. Both they and their camels were without number. Why are camels specifically listed? Why camels? Well, after doing a lot of research and trying to learn, uh, learning about these camels and learning the the, kind of the power behind them, I learned a very interesting fact. During the westward expansion of the U.S., the U.S. Army was actually strongly considering the use of camels instead of horses for the cavalry. The reason they ended up going with horses though is because they were already here. They were native to the land, they were already here. Camels they would have to export in, they'd have to, to boat them over the sea. So they went with horses, but camels, there was a reason why they were looking at camels. Camels they can go for about 300 miles without needing water, 300 miles, they can keep going. They're also incredibly quick and they're very tall. Camels are approximately eight feet tall, and they can run about 40 miles an hour. Now think about that. Think of a Midianite soldier, eight feet up off the ground, okay, so maybe the head's eight feet, so six feet off the ground, so they're sitting on my head with their sword, with their battle gear on, running at you, charging at you on this beast, running at you 40 miles an hour. That's a pretty awful, awesome sight coming at you. That's pretty intimidating. We will learn in a few weeks, when, as we work through the, the, the chapters, that there was approximately 135,000 Midianite soldiers. So let's just assume, or let's just pretend that each one of them had a camel. 135 camels, eight feet tall, running 40 miles an hour, with armed men on top, with soldiers on top. That is a very, not only oppressive, but intimidating sight. But I found it very interesting. Why are camels listed well, they were a very imposing force. And I thought it very interesting that, could you imagine? Think of, you know, Buffalo Bill. Think of the, the, the Old West riders. Instead of coming in on horseback, coming in on camel. Makes you smile. Makes you kind of laugh a little bit at the thought of that. But there was a potential for that. So they came in with their camels without number. And they would enter the land and they would destroy it. The Midian oppression came as a result of sin. Nothing else. came as a result of sin. The people of Israel, they needed to be humbled so that they would be able to turn back to God. That's a hard concept for us to understand at times, but for our hearts, we can, we can repent in our head, but it doesn't always mean that we mean that we repent in our heart. And there are times where the Lord needs to bring us low to a humble place kind of that rock bottom moment so that then he can build us up in grace and forgiveness and in love. But it takes an an awareness and acknowledgement that our heart is full of sin or has sin in it for the Lord to lift us up and to forgive us of that sin and to build something new and fresh with us. So that's kind of the details of their bondage, of their servitude. For seven years, this is going on. Seven long years. We've been in COVID since March. And some of us are already exhausted. We're done. We want to move on. It's been about five months. So we're almost to the point where for one month of COVID, they had one year of oppression. And some of us are already done. We want to move on from this. Imagine if this was for seven years. And what if the point in all of this with COVID was so the Lord would get a hold of his people's heart once again, would say, hey, your hearts aren't with me. Your attitude, your mouth might might be with me, but your hearts are far from me. As much as we are discomforted in this time, if in this season of new normals, of unprecedented times, of all the statements now, what if the entire point was so that the Lord would get a hold of his people's hearts once more and draw them back to him? Would it be worth it? I want to say yes. Yes. But that's a, that's a big thing to swallow. But I want to say yes, because I want to say it's worth it if we are back with the Lord once again. But I think that's an individual answer that we all have to respond to. We all have to have a response in these times. The Israelites have a, had a response. Their response are found in the next few verses that we'll talk through. Verses 6-10 through 10 say this. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Remember, this has been going on for seven years. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Midianites, or that the Lord, sorry, responded. He sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So after a long season of humiliation, of fruitless labor, of poverty, of domination, of oppression, Israel finally cried out to the Lord. For seven years this has been going on. Prayer was their last resort and not their first resource. It's remarkable to think of how long they waited to cry out to the Lord. They've done everything else. They've moved into the mountains. They've been living in the caves. And it dawned on them one day. Finally, after seven years, we had one last resort. We had one last thing to try. Oh, prayer. I think sometimes that reminds us of people we see in the mirror at times. Prayer being that first response instead of a last resort should be the way we live. Sometimes you might have said in your own heart, in your own life, all I have left to do is pray. I've tried everything else. Now it's time to pray. It's exactly what's going on with the Israelites here. They've tried everything else. And after seven years, now they're crying out to the Lord. It should have been their first response and not their last. Now, historically, it's very surprising to learn that the Israelites, they have already experienced victory over the Midianites in the past, 200 years earlier. This is in Numbers chapter 31, verses 1-7. through 7. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people saying, arm some of yourselves for war and let them go against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. A thousand from each of the tribes, of all the tribes of Israel, you shall send them to war. So there were recruited from the divisions of Israel, 1,000 from each tribe, 12,000 armed men. So 12,000 armed men went against the Midianites 200 years previous. And now there's 135,000 Midianites coming against Israel. Then Moses sent them to the war, 1,000 from each tribe. He sent them to war with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, with the holy articles and the signal and the signal trumpets in his hand, and they warred against the Midianites. This was 200 years earlier. They had already experienced victory. Maybe there are aspects, there are things in your life that you have already experienced victory of before in the past, but you are now being defeated by them once again. The Israelites in their comfort and their complacency and their prosperousness, prosperity, they allowed themselves to get so comfortable that their old enemies snuck in and once again are beating them are defeating them. Maybe you've gotten so comfortable in life that an old victory is now becoming a defeat. The Lord is waiting for us to cry out to Him. And as soon as we cry out, He will respond, and we see that happen here with the Israelites. So in verse 8, what do we see? We see this prophet show up. The Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel. We don't really know who this prophet is. No name is given. We don't know much about him. He shows up, he delivers his message, and he leaves. He's there really to bring a rebuke to the Israelites. God is wanting repentance. The prophet shows up to explain why everything is falling apart. So the light finally comes on and they ask for this forgiveness. The book of Judges is called that, is named that because there are individuals throughout the book that become judges that judge the people. The delivering judge will appear later. We don't know who that is at this point. We do, but the people don't. Before Israel could receive and respond to the work of the judge, they first had to be prepared by this unnamed prophet. The Midianites, they were just a symptom. They weren't the cause of the discomfort. They were just a symptom of the discomfort or a symptom of the sin of turning away. Again, we need to look at our lives. And Lord, is there something going on right now that you're trying to open my eyes to something else in my life? Am I experiencing this oppression because there's sin somewhere else? The Midianites were just a symptom. God sent this messenger, this prophet, to tell them what the real problem was. It wasn't that the Midianites were so strong. It was that Israel was disobedient. Israel thought that the problem was the Midianites, but the real problem was Israel. It's human nature to blame others when it comes to problems that we cause. We can look at our kids. One of them does something. You ask, who did this? And right away, it's every other kid in the house. He did it. She did it. She did it. He did it. Okay, fine. I did it. But right away, we blame everyone else. The message of the prophet shows that when Israel cried out to the Lord, they weren't understanding that they were the problem. God spoke through this prophet, reminding Israel of all that he did for them in the past. Israel needed to be reminded, reminded of what the Lord had done for them and who the Lord was for them so that they could be encouraged to face the current problems. The same God who loved them enough to bring them out of Egypt, to bring them out through the wilderness, to bring them into the promised land, is the same God who still loves them to deliver them from the oppressive hand of Midian. Likewise, the this, this same God who was powerful enough to split the Red Sea to sustain them in the wilderness, to defeat the enemies of the promised land, is still the same powerful God that can come in and remove the oppressive hand of Midian. But they had to cry out. They had to recognize they were the problem. Not the Midianites, not anything else. They were the problem. So we get now, starting in verse 11, we're going to get to the judge of this chapter, of this season. It's going to be Gideon. We know this. But before we get to him, we need to remember verse 10. Verse 10 says, Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. We need to remember those words as we look at Gideon. God is crying out for obedience. is saying, you need to obey what I say. Remember that as we look at Gideon. So we're going to read verses 11 to 16. This is, I would say this is the call of Gideon. This is the introductory kind of the Lord tapping him on the shoulder and saying, I'm picking you, I'm using you. There's a lot more that we're going to unpack in, in the weeks to come. But this is the initial moment where Gideon is kind of brought to light of saying, you're going to be the guy. So verses 11 to 16 say this, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abysserite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us. Why has, he, why has all this happened to us? And where are all of his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. We're actually going to stop there. I'm going to, I'm going to let me go through this first. We're going to stop there, then we'll do 14, 15, 16 in a moment. So now we have the angel of the Lord. This isn't the prophet anymore. The prophet is now gone. Like I said, the prophet's going to show up, deliver the message and leave. The rebuke has been given, and now the angel of the Lord showed up. And if you look in your text, it doesn't mind, so it's right because it's what I'm looking at. It says, now the angel, capital A, of the Lord, capital L. This is what we would say, a theophany, a Christophany. This is a pre-Bethlehem encounter with the Lord. But Gideon's not going to get it. He's not going to understand it. So the angel of the Lord shows up and starts sitting underneath an oak tree. He's not stressed out. He's not freaking out. He's not talking to his therapist or counselor somewhere. To the angel of the Lord, everything's in control. Right now, the whole country's freaking out. There's oppression. There's apostasy. There's all these things happening. And yet, the angel of the Lord is sitting underneath a tree, hanging out. I think that in itself is a great encapsulated picture of today. Lots of things are going on. People are freaking out all over the place. People are getting upset and concerned by many things. And yet, the Lord is perfectly peaceful each and every day of our lives. Now, what does it say about Gideon? It says that Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press. There's something wrong with that. The threshing floor was supposed to be on a high place. On top of the hill or on top of a mountain. So as the grain was beat, the chaff would blow away, the husk of the grain would blow away, and the grain, the seed would fall to the ground. And you needed to be in a high place to catch the wind so that as you beat the grain, that separation could happen. In the wine press, where Gideon is, the wine press was usually tucked inside a mountain in a cave, usually on a non-sun side of the mountain or of the hillside. So it was very damp, it was very cool and dark. The perfect place for squashing grapes and making wine to preserve it. Gideon was in that dark, damp, quiet, no wind place, threshing grain. He was hidden away in the low part of the mountain, probably in there just getting enough for the day. Looking over his shoulder, worrying, wondering if the enemy's coming around the corner to take what he had done. To take the, the fruit of his labor. Not only was he in there probably working just getting for what he needed that day, but he was probably working two or three times harder to get half as much yield out of the crop. crop. Not only did he have to beat the grain, but then he had to separate the husk, the chaff, and the seed. Again, showing you a picture that these people are not living in the promises of the Lord. They're trying to take care of themselves. They're trying in their own power to exist instead of living under his power, under the Lord's power. So in verse 12, the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Valor is like courage on steroids. You see danger in front of you and you run into the danger to protect the people behind you. That's valor. Here's God's perspective. God's perspective of Gideon, mighty man of valor. Little did Gideon know that his name was going to be written in Hebrews as one of the great men of faith. It's almost like this could be taken as a mockery. This man cowering, hiding in the caves is called a man of valor. But once again, Gideon doesn't know the story like we do. He's going to come up with a lot of excuses against this. In verse 13, Gideon says to him, says to the angel of the Lord, O oh my Lord, lowercase l, that word is Adonai or Sir. So really, he's like, oh, good sir, not understanding that he's talking to the Lord. He didn't perceive this angel as being Jehovah. How often, how many times do we realize or do we not realize that the Lord is speaking to us? How many times do we just kind of move on and we, we don't acknowledge that, no, God's talking to me right now. We dismiss it. No, well, he's dismissing it right now, not perceiving that it's the Lord who's speaking to him. In verse 13, he's actually telling the Lord what the Lord did. Where is the Lord? Where are all of his miracles? And that you just want to yell at the text. He's sitting right there in front of you. If, but, when, where, why, all the excuses that could be come up, Gideon's going to sit around and say, What's going on? Where's the Lord at? Why is this happening? He's going to, he's, his human evaluation we're going to get to in a minute is hopeless. Gideon is looking around at his circumstances, at his issues, instead of looking and listening to the Lord first. Once again, how many times do we look around at self before we look to Him? How many times do we look at ourselves before we look to our Heavenly Father? God has given us everything. We have not been all that we can be in Him. Do we constantly, every day, listen and obey His voice? Are we obedient to Him, or are we walking our own way? I, get, I was asked a question often over at the Bible College, and it was, how do I find out what's God's calling? How do I find out what's God, what God's calling is in my life? And I would always say this, God's calling is a progressive Revelation. You faithfully complete step one and He will faithfully show you step two. You faithfully complete step two and and He will faithfully show you step three. If you give yourself entirely to Him in whatever area you have each day, His calling will become unveiled and that you will find that you're in the middle of what you're supposed to be doing as you are faithfully being obedient to Him every single day. If your heart is open, He will speak. If you will be faithful in serving, he will be faithful in giving you opportunities. He called Moses while he was watching over Jethro's flock for 40 years. Here he's calling Gideon while he's threshing wheat. He called David while he was taking care of his father's flocks. He called Peter and John while they were out mending their nets. God is looking for faithful workers, for faithful stewards, for people that are every day living for Him, and He can give them more and more and more. The most common things to us are sacred to Him. You walk around here and it's, oh, well, there's a piece of trash on the floor. It's Who cares? No one's in the building. It's fine. No, that's sacred to the Lord because that's being a faithful servant. So I pick it up. Why? Not because any of you are going to see that piece of trash, but the Lord sees it and it's taking care of His house. Here, God's calling, Jehovah's calling was very short. Verse 14, Then the Lord turned to him, the Lord turned to Gideon, and said this, Go, there's his calling, go. Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, so Gideon said to Jehovah, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. The Lord looked upon Gideon. God knew what he had in store, what he had ahead for Gideon. Gideon's self assessment is hopeless. He's looking at himself and saying, I am the least and the weakest. Gideon's perspective is one of hopelessness. What was God's perspective again? Go back to verse 12. Mighty man of valor. God's perspective, man of valor. Gideon's perspective, weakest and least. Whose perspective would you want to listen to in that? Do you want to take on the mantle of being the weakest and the least? Or do you want to be considered a man or a woman of valor? I know what I would choose, but now i got to live it out. God does not call according to human evaluation. He sees the potential. God sees what we can be because He is with us and He is in us. We're given that promise. Go to the end of Matthew, and lo, I am with you, even until the end of the age. We only need Him to be with us to impact our entire surroundings. Again, we see these excuses in verse 15. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Gideon is judging the potential of the situation by looking at himself. He thought of himself as a nobody from the smallest clan in his tribe, and that he was the least in his own family. Corinthians 2, 9, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 12.9 says this, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I, would, I will rather boast in my infirmities and my weaknesses and my lack that the power of Christ may rest upon me. His grace is sufficient for you. His strength is made perfect in your weakness. If you try to make yourself perfectly strong, where is that provision of the Lord in your life? If you become so self-sufficient, then where is the ability of the Spirit to live out of you? Verse 16 says this, And the Lord said to him, the Lord said to Gideon, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat, you shall strike down the Midianites as one man. So God is saying, as one man, I'm going to knock down 135,000. Gideon was faithfully just beating grain in the wine press, not living in the promises of God, but being faithful in the life that he had before him. We need to look for the Lord in everyday humdrum routines of life. You wake up, you get ready, you go to work, you do your job, you come home, you have dinner, and you finish your night. Where's the Lord in that? He's there. Are you looking for Him? Are you saying, Lord, here am I. What do you want with me today? God's assurance to Gideon was not to build up his self-confidence, but to assure him that God was with him. Again, what did it say in verse 10 at the end of it? But you have not obeyed my voice. God's voice said, Gideon, you are a mighty man of valor. But what was Gideon's response to that? No, I'm not. I'm the weakest and I'm the least. I'm nothing. I'm no one. He needs to obey the voice of the Lord in his life. He's also not recognizing that it's the Lord at this point. We need to have our spiritual eyes open so that we can understand and see and grow in our perspective of who the Lord is in our life and how He wants to talk to us. Gideon did not need more self-confidence. He needed more God-confidence. He needed to be strengthened in his inner man as it says in the New Testament. He needed to know that God is with him. He's going to learn this, but he's starting here going, I'm the weakest, I'm the least. I'm talking to some person and I'm not even understanding who he is. It is important for all of us to know that God has sent us, but it's even more important to know that God is with us. Okay, great, God has sent me here. That's awesome. That's great. More importantly, he's still with me every day as I wake up. The problem of perspective is it's a choice. You have to make a choice on whose perspective you're going to listen to. You can convince yourself that your perspective is the right perspective, is the most accurate perspective that you can have for yourself. The question is is that God's perspective for you? Who are you in the eyes of God? And what does he have for you in his plan of eternity? Today I want to end with a quote. When it comes to Gideon, this quote really sums it up for me, and I I absolutely love it. It's by D.L. Moody, and it says this. The world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully consecrated to him, who is fully given over to him. Let me read that again. The world has yet to see. The world has not seen yet, people, what God will do with the man For the man, through the man, in the man, and by the man who is fully given over to the Lord. The world hasn't seen it. Here's my challenge Will you be that person? Maybe you'll be the person that is the first one to be fully consecrated, fully given over to the Lord, and then we will all see what the Lord can do through that life that is fully given over to Him. What areas of your life? Are you now listening to your perspective instead of listening to his? What truths have you convinced yourself of that you have created that are not God's? Today, this week, take time and say, Lord, what's your perspective? What's your thought of me? Who am I as your son? Lord, am I faithfully serving you? Lord, am I faithfully completing step one so that you can show me step two? Or am I not even at the starting line yet? God tapped Gideon on the shoulder and said, mighty man of valor, I have something for you. And what's Gideon's response? Oh, good sir, I don't know what's going on, but I'm the weakest and I'm the least. I'm a nobody, I'm a nothing. And God's eyes not only is he something, but he is the someone in this point. Maybe in your life, you are the someone that God needs to do something with so that he can be glorified. Amen? Let's pray. Lord. We